The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. It's good to be with you this morning. And I want to welcome everybody here in the room in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, I did want to let you know, uh, for those of you who know John and Nancy McCurdy, uh, some of you may have heard that their youngest son passed away this past week. Uh, he was 55 years old, Michael, and so they're in, they're in Texas this weekend, and I just wanted to lift them up in prayer this morning uh, before we get going. Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks to you for John and Nancy. We thank you for their family. And Lord, we lift them up to you and ask for strength through this season. We ask that you would be near to them. You would walk with them as they mourn the life of their son, Michael. As they celebrate him and yet lament his loss. God, be with them. Draw them near to each other. Draw them near to you. And bind them together in the love of Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to thank you for being here this morning. And I wanted to let you know that if you're a visitor, this is a church being transformed into the image of Christ so that anyone can find the way to God. And we do that through gathering in the name of the Father, growing into the image of the Son, and going by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have another opportunity to gather together as a church family, not in here in this room, but actually at Hafer Park in Edmond, not this coming Thursday, but the following Thursday on September 28th, we're going to have a worship night out in Hafer Park. So I hope you'll put that in your calendars, invite your friends, come on out, September 28th, 6.30, it's going to be a great chance to proclaim the gospel, to remind one another of our salvation, and to gather in fellowship and scripture and prayer and song. So I hope you'll take that opportunity to be there Thursday, September 28th. But I'm glad you're here this morning, and we're going to be continuing our series in the letter to the Philippians. We're in chapter 1, verses 18b through 30 this morning, if you're following along in your Bibles. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my salvation. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet I cannot say which I will choose. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain with all of you for your progress and joy in faith. So that by my presence again with you, your boast might abound in Christ Jesus because of me. Only live your life 
in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and in no way frightened by those opposing you. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation, and this is God's doing. For he has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. Since you are having the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. God, once again, we give you thanks for this word. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the living voice in this text, your living word, Jesus Christ. God, let your Holy Spirit give us ears to hear that living voice. And God, I ask for the gift of preaching. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Mike Burry saw profit where no one else could see it. And he also saw the 2007 Great Recession all the way back in 2004. You might know a little bit about Mike Burry if you happen to have read the book The Big Short or have seen him portrayed by Christian Bale in the movie. But Mike Burry is a fascinating guy who saw the world differently than other people, both literally and figuratively. As a child, a two-year-old, he contracted a cancer and the operation for that cancer cost him one of his eyes. So he actually saw the world differently, and he became a bit more socially awkward, and it changed his trajectory. It allowed him to see things that other people couldn't see. And he went on to a life of success. He became a doctor. He worked at Stanford Hospital, and from there, he decided to start his own investment firm. And it was around that time in 2004 that he began to see that the U.S. housing market was incredibly unstable. He was seeing patterns that no one else was seeing, and he devised a unique way, a brand new way, of betting against that housing market. And so he called up seven of Wall Street's biggest firms. He called up Merrill Lynch and Bank of America and Goldman Sachs, and only two of the seven had any interest in talking, interest in talking with him further, Five of the seven had no idea what he was talking about, even though in a few years' time, Mike Burry's idea would cause billions of losses for these big Wall Street firms. It would create a trillion-dollar industry on Wall Street. And when the recession hit in 2007, Mike Burry and his organization gained profit by 489%, $2.69 billion. He made profit because he saw profit where no one else could see it. He saw a pattern that no one else was seeing. And we've been talking for a couple of weeks about a pattern that no one in the world really saw until Jesus Christ. The pattern that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2 of Jesus who was in the form of God but didn't consider that something to be grasped and instead empties himself, takes the form of a slave and becomes obedient 
unto death. The pattern of the gospel. This is the pattern that Paul sees, the pattern of salvation, of Christ's humility. And it changes, once Paul sees it, it changes his valuation of the entire cosmos. It changes the way Paul sees profit and deficit, gain and loss. Paul starts doing math differently when he sees the pattern of Christ. It changes the way he sees the world. And reading the letter to the Philippians, I have to ask myself, do I really see the world the way Paul does? Do I really value the world the way that Paul looks at the values in the world? Do I really say it with my mouth? Do I think it with my thoughts? And do I live it with my life? Do I, am I doing the same kind of kingdom math that Paul did? because of the pattern he saw in Christ. To answer that question, I think we've got to look closer at how Paul is crunching the numbers. So let's jump back into verses 20 and 21 of our text. He says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Living is Christ, dying is gain? Profit? That's not how we normally look at death. But that's how Paul's looking at it. Right? Paul sees the world differently now. And now he sees that living as Christ, that's obeying Christ, following him, serving his people, serving the world. But dying would be gain. Dying would be gain. Life and death, that's what we usually use, that phrase, when we're talking about things that are really, really important. We say, this is a life or death situation. This is life and death. Or when it's not important, we also use that phrase. Right? We say it's, it's not life or death. Right? This isn't a life and death situation. Right? But Paul is sort of caught in this tension between those two things. Paul literally is in a life or death situation. Right? Paul is facing a trial that could actually spell death for him. It could actually mean that he dies. And yet he writes to the Philippian church, he says, hey, actually, it's okay. Whatever happens, this is going to come out for my salvation, right? Whatever happens in life or in death, this is all coming up Jesus. And here's why Paul can say that. Paul says that because of the gospel. Paul says that because of the cross and the resurrection, right? He says it in the same way in Romans 14, he says, We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, so that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. In other words... This is life and death for Paul, but Jesus is Lord of life and death. This is life or death for Paul, 
but Jesus is Lord of life and death. That's what Paul sees, right? Because Jesus has died and risen again. So Jesus has been through death and into life. So Paul sees, yes, this is life or death, but whatever happens, Jesus is glorified. Whatever happens, Jesus is Lord. So Paul finds this inexplicable peace here facing death. In 1987, my mother-in-law, Kathy Bowles, she found herself incredibly sick. And so Larry, her husband, he began driving her to the ER, and she started vomiting on the way to the hospital. And they get to the hospital, and they find out that they do a spinal tap, and they find out she's got white blood cells in her spinal fluid. And they're very concerned this might actually be a brain bleed. And so they, they tell her, all right, we're, we can do this. We can put this dye, inject it, and see if you have the brain bleed. But there's a big chance you might actually die because of it. And there's also a chance that if we do nothing, you might die. But there's a chance if we do this, you might live. So Larry signs these surgical consent forms as they're telling them of these dire odds and Larry's obviously not doing well, and Kathy's mom is there. She's not doing well. But somehow Kathy, in, the, in this moment, facing death, finds peace. She finds herself strangely, strangely warmed by the thought that she may be going to be with Christ. Finds herself in the face of death thinking, I may actually see Jesus. Finds herself at peace. This is a little bit like what Paul is facing. Paul is really facing down a potential death sentence. And yet, Paul, he knows that this is life or death, but he knows that in life or in death, Jesus Christ is Lord of life and death. All right, And he says as much in verse 23, he says, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Far better. It's far better to go and be with Jesus, Paul says. But he also says, I I need to be with you. I need to serve you. And Paul says this because he has seen something, a truth in the world that has changed his valuation of everything. And that truth is that in life or in death, nothing is worth more than Jesus. If you hear one thing this morning, hear that in life or in death, nothing is worth more than Jesus. This is the fundamental principle of kingdom math, that Jesus Christ, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, all things are from him and to him and through him. Nothing is worth more than Jesus Christ. Paul has found the pearl of great price. Remember how Jesus talks about kingdom math in Matthew chapter 13? He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and reburied. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Paul has found the key to kingdom math. He has seen the pattern 
of the mind of Christ, and he's seen that Jesus Christ is worth more than anything else. So going to be with Jesus is better. But also serving like Christ is necessary. He's caught in this decision, right, to go and to be with Christ or to be here with you and to serve you like Christ. In fact, George Hunzinger in his commentary on Philippians, he draws a parallel between Paul's dilemma here and perhaps the most famous speaker and speech in all of English theater, Hamlet. Prince of Denmark, right? We can all quote that opening line, to be or not to be, that is the question. Right? Hamlet is struggling, according to some critics, with this choice between avenging the murder of his father right, or living with his conscience as it currently, currently is. Right? Because if he avenges his father... He's probably going to eventually be captured and executed, right? Not to be. And he's also worried about what that vengeance might mean for his life beyond the grave. So he's caught in this choice. But Hamlet's calculus is different than Paul's calculus. Paul is is doing different math. Hamlet is ultimately quite self-focused. But Paul is focused entirely on others. Paul is focused on either Christ or Christ's followers, right? Either Jesus or the churches of people following Jesus. Paul is focused on those outside of himself. Paul is not Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. He is Paul, the apostle, a slave of Christ. And Paul has seen the importance of service, Paul has seen the importance of humility, of, remember chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul says, let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Paul has seen the pattern of Jesus. He has seen what's truly important, lowering ourselves, putting others above and before ourselves. And that was revolutionary. Remember we talked a couple weeks ago and Ben talked last week about humility and and how revolutionary it is to view humility as a positive thing. How revolutionary it is to put others in front of ourselves. That was revolutionary in Paul's day and I believe it remains counterintuitive in our day. It remains a challenging thing to see with the mind of Christ. To see the pattern of of Jesus in the world, to act according to those ways. One of the reasons I think it's especially difficult for us today is because we are weird. And I don't just mean we have some weirdos in here, of which I'm a member of that group as individuals, but we are weird in Joseph Henrik's use of the term, Uh, Weird. We belong to a society that is Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. That slide is weird. I'm sorry. That was on purpose. Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Right? We all belong to a society that is like this, and many of us are these things. And we might think that that's just how everyone is, that's the air that we breathe, but 
most humans throughout history and many humans across the globe today are not Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. All right, and there are some good things that come with these things, but there are also some drawbacks. There are also some blind spots that we have. We are highly individualistic in our culture. We are highly controlling, highly success-oriented and focused, and that changes our view of the world. It potentially makes it difficult to do kingdom math, to see with the mind of Christ, to understand what the Apostle Paul understood when in verse 20 of our text he says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says it doesn't matter my personal success and fulfillment. It's about Jesus. It's about the kingdom of God. Paul says, what does he say? He says, I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Paul knows that truth from Galatians. If you know it, you can sing it. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul has died. Those of us who are in Christ, we have died. And now that Paul has died, the task is to learn how to die to himself. How to give his life away, the life that he has lost because it is now Christ in him living that life. Paul's task is to learn with his life how to die. When I was graduating high school, one of my favorite singer-songwriters, John Foreman, came out with a series of four little albums, one for each of the seasons, fall, winter, spring, summer. And each of these albums in lyrics and in instrumentation and tone, they, they really capture each of these seasons. And I was arrested by the winter album. And in the first track on that album, it's called Learning How to Die. And one of the characters in the song sings in the chorus, she said, friend, all along thought I was learning how to take, how to bend, not how to break, how to laugh, not how to cry, but really I've been learning how to die. Paul has seen a pattern in the world that has changed his valuation. It's changed his relationship to his very life that now he's trying to learn how to give that life away. And it would be far better to go with Jesus. But it's also necessary to suffer with Christ. It's more than necessary. In fact, in verse 29, towards the end of our text, he says, For he has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. Suffering as a privilege for Christ. That's not how we typically think about suffering. 
That's not how we typically view our lives in Christ. But Paul's doing different math. He's got a different calculus, a calculus that includes Romans 8, 18, where he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. When Brad East was here with us in July, he reminded a group of us about the 21. The 21, those Coptic Christian martyrs that you might remember from 2015 who on video were gruesomely beheaded by ISIS in Libya. And there's a German journalist who, after this event, went into Egypt to try and meet the families of these martyrs, to try and meet their minister, to try and understand their lives, where they came from, what they were doing. And he found that these 21 guys, they were actually just regular, average, ordinary guys. They were humble construction workers who had left Egypt in order to go to Libya to work and send everything back to support their families. These were regular, average, everyday guys. But they were Coptic Christians. Those are the Christians in Egypt who trace their lineage really all the way back to the first century, and they're a persecuted religious minority today. And the Coptic Christians, unlike other persecuted minorities in other countries throughout history, sometimes oppressors have branded them with tattoos, but the Coptic Christians themselves have given each of them a cross tattoo underneath their hand. Because as they say, they're, they're proud of the cross. They're, they're proud and want to suffer for Christ. They want to give themselves, to give their lives, to learn how to die, to train for martyrdom. And that's precisely what the 21 did in Libya. As they were killed, praying quietly to Jesus, Oh my Lord Jesus. And Paul says, whether by life or by death, Christ will be exalted in my body. And so the question that Paul poses to us this morning, the question posed to us by the 21, the question posed to us by the pattern of Jesus that we see, is if in Christ even dying is gain, what do we have to lose Church, if in Christ, even dying is gain, what do we have to lose? What do we possibly have to lose? If Jesus, in life or in death, truly is the greatest possible thing, nothing is more valuable in life or in death than Jesus Christ, than the triune God. And if that's true, what could we possibly have to lose? What do we have to lose by standing on our integrity, even if it means the loss of our career? What do we have to lose by speaking about our faith, telling the gospel to our coworker, to our neighbor? What do we have to lose by standing in solidarity with the poor and the least of these? 
What do we possibly have to lose if in life or in death, Jesus Christ is Lord of the living and the dead? And that's not just a rhetorical question. What do we have to lose? It's actually a call to action. What do we have that we can lose? What do we have that we can give up? What do we have that we can let go of? Humble ourselves. Be obedient, even unto death. Following in the footsteps of Christ our King. Church, what do we have to lose when Jesus Christ is Lord of the living and the dead, and in life or in death there is nothing more valuable than him. Let us stand and praise Jesus, the name above all names.